Hey folks, it's Jeremy. You're listening to Blamo. All right. How are we all doing? Did uh, did everyone watch the New York Marathon yesterday and uh, and cry? <laughs> I swear to God, man. Every, well, first off, everything makes me cry. But the marathon, oof, it really hits me. For folks not in New York, it's it's a, it's a wild experience because everyone is is happy for everyone. You're just constantly cheering on people you don't know. And in a way, it, it kind of becomes this sort of u- utopian experience. There's no arguing. There's no hate. It's just kind words. It's good vibes. And uh, it's, it's just great. So if you've never been, you should check it out. I'm sure if you just watched it on TV, you probably didn't get the same vibe. I don't know. Maybe they cut some music in. Who knows? But look, I, I love running. But uh, you'll probably never see me in the marathon. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm the kind of guy, I listen to, like, Sigaros. Beirut, you know, Mogwai, whatever. I run slow and I look at stuff. Um, it's, it's just kind of what I do. I, I just, I, I, I take it all in. But um, on the Beirut tip, yes, Zach Condon of Beirut is on the pod this week. Pretty great, right? It was a good one. And I'll also say, you know, because of the strike and other things right now, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of actors and other people who we were supposed to talk to, we haven't been able to. So don't worry about it. The show's kind of always going on, but Zach, first of all, I've been a Beirut fan for ages since like they burst onto the scene in 2006. And I say they, but I mean, truthfully, as we all know, it's, it's just him. I mean, he's had a band, but it's just always been Zach and he's got a new record called Hotsel. It's dropping November 10th and oh my God, it's so good. Um, the dude, <laughs> he went up to Norway and he, uh, he wrote and recorded many of the songs on this like giant pipe organ, like in this. There's pictures of it online because, you know, other press and people have been talking about it. It's probably a picture in like Rolling Stone or something, but it's like this gigantic pipe organ and homie was just in there, just, just doing it up. But uh, if you're a Beirut head, <laughs> if, if, I don't know, is that what people can call themselves? But like, it's my favorite record he's ever put out, hands down. I mean, and, and I, I, I revisited the entire catalog uh, while I was also listening to the new record and, uh, oh my God, it's great. But um. It's man, he he really went through the darkness though to get there. And so I before we jump, I need to say one thing because this interview gets into some pretty heavy stuff, so fair warning, but I truly believe that we all look at artists to help us understand our own lives, right? Like, you know, we listen to music, we 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 view paintings, movies, all these things, but we view it to kind of help us understand ourselves. But I think we we often get so wrapped up in the experience that like we as the people viewing or listening don't always get to ask how the person who created the art got into that, right? And look, this isn't a gut check. Like this isn't like, oh, you need to think more. But I think it's just one of the things that Zach and I discussed uh, in, in this interview. Uh, and he openly talks about his mental health struggles. I mean, it, it's, it's all in there. Um, we discussed recording his new LP in Norway, falling in love with country music, <laughs> eating his words on that too, by the way, dealing with burnout, getting into sci-fi, the upcoming live shows, and becoming an accidental fit god. Yep, it's all in there. Here's my talk with Zach Condon of Beirut. Let's go. Obviously, I'm a massive fan of your music. And I'll say this, so is my daughter. Hmm. I was We were listening to your record this morning, the new one, thanks to uh, Secretly, we, we got a nice little pre-release. And I kept, uh, it was on airplay, right? Because like I have to listen to it through the watermark thing. And it's on the the Sonos in the house. And I would pause it 
for a moment to do something. And my daughter, who's five, was like, Dad, can you please turn it back on? Oh, wow. And I was like, oh. And she was like, no, Dad, really, I, I need to turn it back on. You know, and then I would move to the other room and the airplay would cut out or something. And she was like, Dad, can you leave your phone in here? Because I want to mm-hmm. hear this music. Oh, and yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's great. I, I mean, I've listened to your entire catalog on numerous occasions, but this feels like a much heavier record, despite the uh, despite your your new uh, newfound love for the for the big organ sounds. Well, yeah, I mean that's that's no that's no exaggeration. There's uh, there was so much I was going through at the time, I guess, and it comes out that way whether I like to or not. I don't know. Sometimes I wonder if I could write an album without that kind of underlying moroseness and like the melancholy <laughs> and like every lyric that almost turns happy for a second all of a sudden kind of goes south. It's like I, I find that so interesting though. I, for me, it's especially in America, we're, we're so often told these narratives, you know, these kind of perfect, like tied up in a bow tie and, and everything kind of turns out the right way. And I think a lot of people in interviews for this record, for example, are asking me, like, so now that you wrote this album, do you feel better you know <laughs> i'm just thinking where are you getting this stuff you know this is magical thinking uh it's not how it works and uh i don't know it's kind of funny well can can you elaborate a little bit more like how does that question make you feel well it's not like i sit there feeling insulted or something i'm you know people want to hear a nice ending and i get that but it to me it kind of it seems a little childish in a way to kind of imagine that that perfect ending or such a neat ending and i i don't know i've actually spent so many years in, at this point kind of in i'll say in recovery because it, that means a lot of things it's not just like alcohol related or this or that related it's uh just a general kind of like i don't know i was going nowhere fast and uh and we can talk about that because that's probably the most interesting. But there, there's you see a lot of that in people in recovery, people who suffer from trauma or addiction or just mental illness in general. One of the things we have the strongest is this kind of magical thinking and delusion. And we really, really want these super clean black and white answers to everything, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I, I remember actually talking to people, you know, as I'm struggling with all the things I was struggling with. And because uh, I'm trying to change, I mean, to put it very simply, it's like I'm trying not to live in such a destructive way. And um, I remember asking people, like, how many years did it take before you got better? Mm. You know what I mean? And now when I hear that question, it's like the absurdity is is mind blowing. Like there's no there's no answer to that question. You know, there's just a blank stare. Like, how could you even think that way? But but coming from where I came from, you know, that's what I wanted to hear. I wanted to hear that after two years, you get your mind back and you function <laughs> like a normal human being. Right, right. You know, and I swear when I wrote this album, I was still in that mind state. I was still like, I'll come out of this. I'll be on the other side and everything will be different. No, no, no. That's just not how it works. You know, do you take any joy, though, that your music might be healing to other people? Oh, I, I take immense joy in that. I, I might come across as a cynic and a real kind of, I, I call it like an Eeyore type, you know, Eeyore from <laughs> Winnie the Pooh. Like, I guess so. Like, I, I yeah. sound like that. I talk like that. You know, I live like that practically. Um, but that's not really what it's about. And that's not what the music is about. The music to me actually is a very hopeful, transcendent thing. And it means the world to me because I actually get that more than more than most messages, you know, the, the most I would get because I do kind of have an Instagram now that I attempt to run sometimes. And more often than not, the messages are like, yeah, yeah, this, this album or that song that took me through a dark time in my life. And I'm just sitting there going, oh, thank God, you know, yeah. if I can have any good in this world come from my music, then, then there's a reason I'm here. And, and I'm happy to embrace that. So like I said, don't think just because I sound very cynical, 
that I am more of a like cynical person deep down. Well, it's, I mean, you're talking about magical thinking. It sounds like you, you found God or something in this, this recent album, hmm. or you're just exploring what it means to have the, the higher power relationship. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I grew up in such an atheistic household in a way. And, um, my mom, for example, calls herself a recovering Catholic. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, she comes from that very strict Irish Catholic grew up with the nuns kind of, you know, hitting kids with rulers if they said something did something wrong and if you were left-handed you were you know the spawn of satan and all that Mm -hmm. stuff that's pathological religion you know that's a that's a dark place to be but what i've found in the last five six years of my life so to speak is um as starting around god i don't know it started really early for me like 9 10 maybe 11 years old was the Mm. main thing i i started to feel this like void in life just this deep aching doom and it came and it came so strong and that was a period where i started having really bad insomnia something that i still that's the reason i'm a night owl for example and i could never go to sleep and i was always alone and through the night and and i was really it was hell it was hell on earth being stuck uh, alone in my in my mind all night long for years on end it was Mm. just absolute torture i got to some really dark places well before i should have and um so that was where that all started and what came out of those long nights of being alone and just staring at the ceiling because i I shared a room with my brothers if i even moved too much you know everyone would wake up and get kind of frustrated with me um because the house was super small we were moving a lot at the time around new mexico and um what came to me was this pointlessness of the universe just this absolute, it's just like this unnecessary accident that we were all here and everyone was just kind of chipping away at their little rat rat race life until they kind of turned to ash and disappeared and no one gave a shit. And that was where I was as like an 11 year old kid. It was holy. Yeah, it was absolutely horrible. And I really, truly believed that through most of my life. And I would, I would find these obsessions and these addictions and they kind of held me through it, you know, like skateboarding became an addiction very quickly. And I loved it for that. And I still do. I'm like, yeah, skateboarding saved my life. And then music saved my life because skateboarding, I, I injured myself too much. I broke my wrist. Like, <laughs> yeah. I think I've, I've counted six or seven times now. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Same wrists too. <laughs> so anyway. Well, it sounds like there was a lot of shame mm-hmm. though, too, that that's kind of like, yeah. I mean, spe- specifically the Catholic thing yeah. and even some of your earlier songs and earlier lyrics, mm-hmm. there was what to me, I'm not trying to project on you, was was felt like some sort of escape. You know, when, when you're raised in an almost overtly, you know, over-religious home, even one that becomes, you know, anti-religious or, or you know, mm-hmm. uh, there's th- yeah, there's yeah. still this concept of shame and how and how we uh, try to protect ourselves. Right. Yeah, I've asked myself a lot where this kind of cultural shame comes from. And, you know, you arrive at certain things and you'll notice it's in British culture. I think it was handed right down to the Americans. Oh, absolutely. And um, you don't see that kind of toxic shame in places like Germany culturally. It's like they have it, sure, but it's not, it's nowhere near the kind of inescapable, desperate amount that you have it in Britain and England. In America, for example, so it's interesting to go abroad and see that on a different scale. Yeah, I, I think also now, you know, you and I are about the same age. I feel like we're the one of the first generations, specifically, kind of like the elder millennial, right? For lack of a better term, that are mm-hmm. more okay speaking about how we feel versus say like a lot of Gen X mentality and Boomer mentality is very closing off fear. Yeah. Um, 
you know, rising above this kind of hard work ethic, pull up by the bootstraps. And that attitude basically doesn't really allow for any sort of internal processing. And I feel like, especially you as an artist, your processing really helps others process, right? And and it's it's such an amazing gift you have to be right. able to do that. Yeah, I mean, that is incredible. I mean, here's where I'm going to come across as extremely cynical. Okay. Hit me. All right. So I've kind of come through that. So during, for a three-year period, I was doing nothing but just reading all the literature on kind of shame and trauma and mental disorder, so to speak. Okay. And I really, yeah, I, I, I had really mapped out the world in that way that kind of what's his name, Gabor Mate and, and Bessel van der Kolk are like, everything is trauma. Mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. the whole world is trauma. You can see all behaviors affected by trauma and toxic shame and so on. So I agree with these people to a large extent. I do see it that way. However, I don't know how much us just being constantly open and constantly focused on it is helping anybody. If I'm being honest, see, I've kind of come to this conclusion that we are, we're soaking this up. And instead of kind of getting through it and moving on, we're, we're, we're like hyper-focused on it and we're just marinating in it all the damn time. And I think it's kind of creating an almost selfish and entitled culture out of it. And so I actually fear doing these interviews and talking about this stuff, because while I think I've been through the ringer and I think I've been through a lot with what I've experienced and maybe people don't even know the full extent of that, there is a part of me that worries that the kind of effect of this downstream is just a kind of, again, like this over-focus on these things. And you were asking earlier about religion, right? Mm -hmm. And what I've kind of determined is is that people have always felt the way that we feel. Always. It's never never been different. And what religion does when taken at the right dose, if you want to put it that way, because everything can be pushed to an extreme and become pathological. Just mm-hmm. like focusing on yourself in the kind of self-help world can become pathological. And I think culturally, we've actually kind of gone down that road at times. But religion taken with the right dose is almost like saying, I take that extreme pain and I know that life is serious. And that gives it more meaning in some ways. So it's like the depth of that is the depth of the kind of challenge of life. And to accept that kind of wholeheartedly is such an interesting idea rather than to kind of wallow in self-pity and, and then blame and kind of the entitlement of like, I can't accept reality the way it is. I want to change it. Mm. And that's the kind of interesting new perspective I have now that I didn't have five years ago. You know, well, where does joy fit into this? Well, joy is the gift. It's like the greatest gift of all. It's like the, the pure moments, um, but you don't get to live joyous. And I, I, you know, I don't know how that would be if it's, it's not, it's not a real world where you can just live joyously all the time. And I think that's an obsession, especially of Americans, for example, this kind of like life where you're basically high all the time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think I think there's a few different things that you're picking at too. And I mean, in a lot of them, most people are able to understand the highs and lows of emotions that are their own. And then eventually, mm. as you grow older, you start to question those and you figure out what are the root of those emo- emotions like any sort of, I don't know, like Freudian, right? Mm -hmm. Where you get into your family of origin and most of these things are there so people can understand them so they can then be okay with where they're at and thus joy ends up being created from the fact that you are aware, right? Because if you're aware of the good, you're also aware of the bad. And, you know, I say this as someone who's been there. I have wrestled with absurd depression. I have wrestled with... um death by suicide. I've wrestled with all sorts of things. And I don't think that I was saved by music, 
family. I'm air quoting all this stuff, right? Eventually, you just have to Mm -hmm. be okay with these sort of states that you're in. And when I realize that I'm okay with these things, instead of fearing them, it's not different than embracing. I've been able to be to receive joy from things that may not were otherwise created for that. Okay, perfect example. Postcards from Italy, your song, Mm -hmm. has one of the most euphoric ends of any song I've ever heard in my life. It's anthematic. It Mm. makes you think of beauty. It makes you think of romance. It makes you think of love and peace and when it when it climaxes at the end and you know right right from where it's just you and the uke and then just the whole freaking band comes in it's mm-hmm. that that music becomes i think joy to me even if you had written that in states of darkness and that's one of the coolest things i think about art yeah. is after it leaves your brain and after your 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 art is created from this new album too like from from Hatzel like somehow you the pain that you had made my daughter dance while she was drawing this morning that's heavy <laughs> shit man and yeah you know this makes me think this is why I, I just I can make the music but I can't seem to talk about it very well that's yeah, okay I think you did a better job of uh, of explaining what it was doing in some ways no when I wrote that song that was a moment of joy I mean music was always the joy I found in the world right that was the craziest thing being a 15 year old 16 year old kid and writing these songs in my bedroom alone having no audience no anyone and just having this just extreme experience of like unbridled joy for example like in that moment and kind of going oh wow I wonder if anyone else will feel this too when they hear it but it's such a strange place to be to have created something that moves you so intensely and then just kind of, you're just in the dark. It's, it's really interesting. Have you ever experienced that with anything else? Like maybe non-music related? Not that I, not that I know of. I mean, there's times when you see something really beautiful, right? You don't have anyone to share it with. Yeah. And you're just kind of like, you're just really blown away, right? But no, I, I think this is one of the things I struggle with is I tend to be kind of a flat affect a lot of the time outside of music. It's like it's all bottled up and then it just comes pouring out. I'm often very surprised by my own music because I don't really know what I'm doing. It's not like I, I'm not a very unintentional person creatively. And that's even something we could talk about because I really, there's just, it's so instinctual and it's so abstract. I can't understand it at all. I just do. I'm just possessed to do it. There's no other way around it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, when it comes out, it's often a complete surprise to me. Like, wow, how did that happen? Oh, what a lucky, what a happy accident, you know? Well, okay, the, how do I pronounce it? It's track three, is it B-A-I? How do I say that word? I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, Bayon. Bayon? Okay. Bayon, yeah. Talk mm-hmm. to me about that. Because that that song for me, I mean, this is just my opinion. It's the best song on the record. Like, I, I listened to it maybe four or five times oh, wow. over and over again. Listen to it in the car. Listen to it on headphones. It's 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 an it's an incredible song. Yeah. How how did that come about? Well, the reason it's called Bayon is because that was the um, the setting on the drum machine. <laughs> that's the that's the Latin section. <laughs> that's the Latin section of the drum the, machine. The bossa nova sort of synth sort of thing. Okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. All right. So I buy these drum machines. I collect them, but I collect them entirely for their Latin settings because I find that you know the rock beats and all that stuff. It's just like put you to sleep you know like God, yeah. how many times you can you hear that in one lifetime um <laughs> so <laughs> so i you know i'm alone when i write always have been always probably always will be and i need accompaniment my accompaniment are these machines i mean that sounds kind of sad now that i say it so um so i have these latin rhythms running in the back very often because i find that they make me think a little more creatively as far as rhythm hmm. you know 
So, yeah, with that one, I had this baritone ukulele and I was doing essentially like a bossa nova strum or something. Yeah. Which was a surprise to me. Again, it's like I can tell you what happened. I can't tell you why I got there. You know, that's that's kind of the funny thing. And so that one was done in the same way as usual, which is like kind of a trance. And yeah, I had more stories to shove into it than I could even fit in lyrics. So half of it came out practically gibberish anyway. Mm -hmm. They're all meshed in there somehow. I don't know. It's very confusing. But yeah, I find that one very interesting. And there's another friend of mine who says that that's his favorite as well. And uh, it's interesting that you guys would pull that one out. Yeah. Oh, dude, it's it's heavy. It's beautiful. It's yeah. I mean, I Mm -hmm. I really like this record. And for for listeners, one of the things you did in this record, you pieced out, you left Berlin Mm -hmm. and you went to Norway. Um, Why Norway? Yeah. So I have this thing where I feel so much more sheltered in winter. Hell yeah. I just feel protected against the world. And there's something about the low light and the low temperatures and the comfy sweatpants and the fire that just that brings me all the comfort in the world. It's something I cannot get in other times of the year. And in Berlin, winter has slowly, because I first came here when I was 19 and it was it was snowing the whole time. It was February. Uh, it looked really bleak. And because of that, it looked awesome to me because it was just so intense. And yeah. um, uh, it was really, really cold. And nowadays it's just, it's like just kind of rainy. It's just gray and rainy, really mild. You can wear like a fall coat through the whole year now for the last like three years practically Mm. but uh i decided to go somewhere where winter was like real again and i um i had heard of lofoten islands um which is a little south of where i ended up and the problem with that it's one of the most beautiful places on on the planet you can tell just by looking at the photos that there's nothing like it yeah it's wild yeah it's incredible like unbelievable uh and when i saw that i knew i wanted to be I knew I wanted to be around that, but I also knew that Lofoten had a kind of a tourism problem, that it was on the brink of kind of infrastructure shutdown because they can't even handle the amount of tourism that they're getting. And this is all thanks to everything from like the Instagram. (laughs) Iceland's got the same issue right now. Yeah, I'm I'm not surprised. Apparently the Chinese got really into that movie Frozen and they they decided, I don't even, I don't think it's mentioned in the movie, but they decided that Lofoten is where Frozen was based. And so now they have a really like mass tourism from China, for example. So it's like, just tourists coming from everywhere and in and, and big numbers. And so I, I thought, yeah, you know, I'll avoid that. But Northern Norway, oh, wow. I didn't know it was that, that beautiful, you know? So I found a place a little north of there on that island, Hadsel, um, with, yeah, with the idea of fleeing, you know, 2019 was a, was a horrible year. Um, it was a really rough year and I, I wasn't coping. And then 2020 knocks on the door. Yeah, right. It just kept getting progressively worse. <laughs> Haven't you seen those internet memes of people being like, it's ever since Harambe, it's all been downhill. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the gor- the gorilla at the zoo. I think, what was that, 2018, 2016? Yeah. yeah. Something like that. So <laughs> we're on like the dark timeline now or something. Wait, wait, ho- hold on a second. Okay, before you send that DM or text that friend, I know what you're thinking. You're ready to buy your first serious watch. Or in other cases, maybe your fourth or your fifth. But look, man, it's hard out there. It really is. From this dealer or that store that wants the purchase history or whatever. I mean, you're just, I I don't know. You're almost ready to walk away from the whole game. But fear not, my friends. Check out Bezel. Bezel is the trusted marketplace for buying and selling your next luxury watch. With expert in-house authentication on every purchase. With over 8 
18,000 watches listed right now, as of the time I'm recording this, from a mix of professional dealers to private sellers. You're just going to find what you're looking for. But wait, wait, I know. You're like, Jeremy, I'm sorry. They don't have that X Rolex or that insane Omega. Well, reach out to them. Bezel has a real team of real people. Just create an account and be connected with a private client advisor, and they will guide you through the entire process every step. Once you decide on your watch, it's overnighted to Bezel HQ where their in-house team of experts authenticate it, and then it's on your way to you. If anything is amiss, the watch is not listed correctly, whatever it is, they'll let you know, the buyer know, and the offer to refund you or source you a new one at a similar price. That's <laughs> pretty good, right? This has been part of the Bezel ethos since launch. I've even spoke to the founders about it. And now you can make an offer on a watch, buy it outright, or bid it at auction. Bezel is the highest rated watch marketplace out there. Even Trustpilot shows Bezel is 4.9 out of 5 stars with rave reviews. Okay, okay, you're still on the fence? Dig into the Blamo feed yourself and listen to my chat with the Bezel co-founders and, well, see for yourself. But you got this. I believe in you. Visit GetBezel.com and buy and sell your next luxury watch. That's GetBezel.com. GetBezel.com. Well, you went like full Brian Wilson, right? I mean, you basically, you had been going through, because I'll say this too for for listeners to kind of add a bit of context. Mm. You kind of blew up. You were one of the like real, real sort of like overnight sensations on like the blog side. It was like when when Beirut first came out for many folks, it was this perfect time where the digital age and the digital sort of like streaming age was was just on the horizon and so people were very excited about Mm -hmm. music your music was in most cases totally unheard of from anyone in the alternative for lack of better term like music scene i mean you were like the darling of every single indie label everyone was losing their mind over you you know, you were kind of, you were with Ben Goldberg on, on Bada Bang and you were doing this stuff. You were on MySpace, you were blowing up. I mean, everything. And then you, at the age that you're yeah. at, gets like baptized by fire <laughs> and everyone in the world wants you. You're going on like global tours and all of a sudden you go from the kid in his bedroom to being the guy like with yeah. stage fright, freaking out, rightly so, across the world. Right. And this happens for years into which you get sick, you know, you yeah. go through many sort of traumatic events and then 2019 hits and you can, you, you know, I'll let you pick up the story there, but just so listeners understand this roller coaster uh, sure. for the sake of time here. Well, I mean, I actually, the first tour, now 2006, first year was uh, that tour ended with me in a state of kind of deep dissociation and depersonalization. Like I didn't know who I was or where I was for like close to a year. It took Jesus. me like six months to kind of get out of the fog that that tour had caused. Because I, I broke down on tour with these panic attacks and I had never had them before. I had no idea what was happening. I thought I was having a heart attack. And I, eventually I made it back home to New Mexico and I spent like six months at my parents' house. And then I couldn't, I couldn't leave the house on my own because I didn't know what was going on. We were afraid I'd be hit by a car or something because I couldn't process anymore and and my family has this history of these breakdowns so we were kind of we were in a state where it was almost like uh yeah am i going to be in like an assisted living home from now on like what are we going to do with this like this is just a broken person yeah it was really really bad and it it was quite a psychedelic experience like i've never taken psychedelics because i don't i think i'm so close to that border already (laughs) naturally that it's like 
You know, why would you yeah. do that to yourself? <laughs> so, you know, and I crossed that border for like a year. And then I ended up writing the second album as I was healing from that. And then that album got picked up like the first one did. And people were like, we want to see you live. And I just was like, okay. And I just took enough anxiety medication and oh, no. like drank enough booze to get on stage again. Yeah. And that's how I lasted like 16 years on the road. So 2019 was, I had quit drinking like two years before i think something like that and gotten the other stuff out of my system as well and because it was always just hanging in there by a thread that's why mm. i'm always ended up in hospitals and all this stuff 2019 i was off everything and it just got worse like you think you get better but you get worse in a lot of ways and it's really difficult to deal with that so it was acutely kind of stressful in a mm. way i had not experienced in a while and um so I kept breaking down. I kept having sicknesses, these throat infections would just sneak up on me and then it would take over. And um, I couldn't even talk, let alone sing. They were so bad. And, and I ended up doing like three weeks of antibiotics and steroids on the U.S. tour that year. And they kept upping the dose of steroids because I kept getting sicker. And and then I got to Europe to do my Europe tour. And, They're turning and, you into Elvis. Yeah, yeah, right. It's just... I don't know what it was. It was insane. I started getting all these skin issues. My skin is still really messed up actually because of all the steroids and like, you know, big pieces of my scalp falling off and just red patchy everything. And, and everything just started to fall apart. And by the third tour where I was again, they were like, you can take some antibiotics and steroids and you might be able to get on stage tonight. And I just went, no, no, I'm mm -hmm. done. I, that's it. I throw in the towel. It's over. It was a really sad moment. And um, right in the middle, I mean, we were supposed to get on stage in Madrid that night. There was like thousands of people there. Oh, my God. They literally walked out and told the crowd, yeah, Zach has laryngitis. He's not playing tonight. It's like, no, I'm, I'm like, it's worse than that. But sure, there's also laryngitis. And you heard, I heard the whole crowd, like this crowd of thousands of people go, ah, you know, like, what the hell? <laughs> it was very, very scary and very crazy. And, and, you know, I also, I sent the band home, like, sorry, guys, I can't make it through this year. You know, oh I thought I could, God. I promised you guys. And, and I told you to stick, stick, stick by me. We'll do this. And, and I'm sending you home, you know, crew members, all that stuff. And yeah, that was, that was the kind of state I was in when I'm like, I'm, I'm getting out, I'm getting out of here. Um, yeah. I, I want to go somewhere far away and I want to go somewhere I feel protected because that was, that was rough, you know, that was, that was a tough year. And so you, you go to, you still have this desire to create, you still have this desire to write music because it, it's a part of you, whether you like it or not. <laughs> Uh, maybe some days you do, maybe some days you don't, but you, you hightail it to Norway and you make this album and this took years, correct? Yeah. Especially because lockdown hits during it. Right. Right. You know, I, I finished the record within a year and a half or so I want to oh, say. And, okay. But it took a year to mix the thing because, because the record was actually, it was a mess. It was really chaotic. And I think I did a good job of mixing it for how chaotic it was, but um, but that was the real struggle. You mixed it yourself? No, not entirely, although I did mix some of it all myself. But I, I did some with Craig Sylvie, a guy in the UK. I mean, he's American, but he's lived in the UK most of his life now. Um, and that was really funny because he was like working on AHA's record. On, on, <laughs> on it during his main time and then kind of giving me like the friend deal on the side. <laughs> with, uh, with his time so he he saved a few songs like from certain death um, he saved stuck because that one was just out of control with all the modular synth 
stuff mm, that I didn't yeah. know what I was doing with. And so the frequencies are really out of control and it, there'd be moments of ear piercing sound and then there would be too much muddiness and other parts because it was really, really chaotically done. Like you can tell when I was doing this record that I didn't know what I was doing, but in this way where I was just manically just going, you know, like hit record, go, don't look back, you know, burn the bridge. There's, there's, there's no returning. And, you know, I liked that about it actually, but it was a lot of work to organize really like a whole year of mixing i've never done that before <laughs> so yeah and then some of the songs actually i mixed and i sent them to him and i said you can make this better right and we would work on it and he would send me a version back and i would say it's missing something and i don't know what it is i don't know what it is i think i'm crazy but it's missing something and, and then eventually last minute right before the album was actually sent to mastering i went you know what i'm, I'm gonna keep my really rough mix anyway and that'll just have to do. But I think I really learned a lot in that process. So Well, at yeah. least you have a bunch of additional releases up your sleeve. If you uh if you get bored, you can you can do various versions of the album. Yeah, right, right. I mean they asked me recently to do the uh what is it, like the, the Dolby out like surround sound one. Yeah, the and Dolby was, Atmos for all the I don't know Apple stuff. I'm so I'm like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I'm I'm very interested. Very curious about that, but I don't know if I have the stomach to deal with mixing that album again. Like, I'm, I'm glad it's done because that was such a brutal. This was like my favorite album I've ever done to listen to. Like literally front to back, I can listen to it front to back and it just, it just makes me smile. It makes me so happy. Um, but after that year of mixing it, I was, I was like ready to put that away for a while. Yeah. The, the sequencing of the album is excellent. You know, as in, in this day and age that we're at now, where where people are listening to songs over albums. I mean, this man just just from start to right. finish, sitting there, I was it was it was great. I really really liked it, and I am kind of a picky asshole with music. Just, just throwing that out there. <laughs> well, I, I can be too, you know. Yeah, I couldn't believe the flow of this record. Is like it's not something I've been able to do before. It really just one dives into the other, and I was quite impressed. What. How, what changed? What, what made that happen then? Especially because you had it for so long. Oh man, I know, right? I don't know. I, there was a very concentrated period of writing. So all of those songs were, they were half done in Norway and then I finished it back in Berlin, but it was all done in complete isolation. I don't know. I wonder if that helped, but it, honestly, I would just be speculating to an extent. <laughs> That's fair. One of the things that you had mentioned is you had talked about how you, you don't really know what you're doing uh, on some of these mm. instruments and things like that that you're using. Do you think that as a musician, not knowing the limits of instruments let people become maybe a little bit more, a mm. little bit more almost like uh, virtuous on using them? Because I feel like that with with like a lot of people who never mm-hmm. kn- understood music theory, they're they're you know they're just going to start to play things in maybe different time signatures different formulas that someone Mm -hmm. who you know say went to like berkeley in boston would never do because it's well you don't you don't Mm -hmm. do that it you you have to do abc you have you have to have a coda you have to have a a middle eight you know and i think not having that can sometimes make really exciting art yeah music of all the arts it's the one where i'm like why the hell would you teach music or is there (laughs) to teach you know um sure (laughs) take that with a grain of salt because sure. there are people who have been to music school, like Owen Pallet, 
you know, who played violins on my second record. Yeah. That guy was a music machine. I've never seen anything like it in my life. Like yeah. he could, he would just rattle on. It sounded like a nutty professor just like talking to himself. He'd just be like, oh, you got to flat the thing here. And then the fourth, <laughs> you got to augment that. And then blah, blah, blah. and then he would just, and he would just do it on the violin. And you'd just be like jaw on the floor. Like, oh my God, how did you do that? Where yeah. did that come from? So it's not all bad, but my experience with music was when they started teaching me the mechanics of it, the only classical training I have is with the trumpet, because that's the instrument I played as a kid, and I had lessons. And he started, he took a whole year to start teaching me music theory, and the whole time I'm sitting there going, don't ruin it for me. <laughs> don't don't show me the, the smoke in the mirrors. I don't want to know. Right, right. And, and I, I still kind of feel that way, if I'm being honest. I really don't don't see the full point of that. I hear people rattling on about music theory most of the time. I'm like, what are you getting out of that? Making mathematics out of an art. You know, it, it doesn't make sense to me. And I really, I avoided overlearning in, in, in any way because it's like, how are you going to make those beautiful mistakes if your mind has been streamlined into the kind of ruts and tracks that you're supposed to follow? It's like, I, to this day, it's like, I don't understand harmony, but when I sing it, it makes sense to me. And I feel like I can come up with some interesting ideas. And I think, you know, for example, the, the two brass players that join me on the road most of the time, they also play mm -hmm. with the national. Yeah. Ben and Kyle, Ben Lands and, and Kyle Resnick. And they're both you know, Ben is a doctor of trombone. I love that. He's like, he's got a doctorate in trombone. And these guys know music theory back and forth. And I love them for it because they're the most useful tools in the world when it comes to this stuff. You know, if you get stuck, they'll help you out, that kind of thing. And But uh, sometimes I'm like, hey, play this note here. It goes, here's the melody. I'm playing against that melody. And they'll kind of look at me and go, you can't do that. You know, and I'm like, no, 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 do it. Just do mm. it. Just trust me. <laughs> so yeah yeah i think you're right yeah. i mean there's there's definitely there's definitely a, a thing there you know i mean when you listen to other bands you know are, are there any other things that you listen to i'm sure this is a question you get asked all the time anyway but there are other things that you listen to specifically making this record that you were kind of doing to reset yourself yeah actually well here's a weird one for me weird um okay. country music i was listening to really old country music yeah like hank williams and the classic stuff but I, I was going deep. I was going really deep. I was going like George Jones even. Here, why don't I try and pull up my Spotify playlist that I made while I was up there? We can just rattle off a few names quickly. Oh, hell yeah. Let's do it. I never listened to country before. Well, I, I can. I, I did listen to country, but there's a story there and I can tell it. So I've got Tom T. Hall. That's how I got to Memphis. That song was on repeat oh, for me. Yes. Um, Johnny Cash, I already listened to long before that. Patsy Klein, of course, Waylon Jennings and Willie Nelson, um, Blaze Foley, Towns Van Zant was a big one, uh, Glenn Campbell, Wichita uh -huh. Lineman, that song is such a beauty, Loretta yeah. Lynn, Don Gibson, George Jones, Jim Ford, um, Merle Haggard. So oh, really yeah. just very, very classic, right down the middle. And you have to understand, for me, that was kind of mind-blowing because I never really listened to that stuff before on my own. What happens is I grew up in a household where my, my parents loved country music. They listened to a ton of country music. And whenever I hear Patsy Cline, I hear my mother singing, for better or for worse. <laughs> Sorry, Mom. No, I'm um, where we were driving around the country when we were young kids. We never flew anywhere. And we would take 
the van everywhere and they would listen to country music and every city we stopped in, they'd be like, oh, we're in Nashville. Here's a song about Nashville. Oh, we're in Memphis. Here's a song about Memphis. Oh, we're in Texas. Here's a song about Amarillo, which by the way, made me realize that that's pretty much where my band name comes from. Just this kind of constant geographical placement of the music. Mm, Yeah. I mean, you've definitely imbued that in a lot of your songs for sure too. I mean, you have songs that are named after cities that they're written in and, and yeah. I mean, it's it's yeah. it's definitely there for sure. Well, I kind of came to the conclusion that that had leaked into my subconscious, my parents and their love of country music. You look at country music, like even just this playlist I was just talking about here. It's like all the songs that are just, they often are just like city names or place names. And in the lyrics, they're often just place names. And that's that's telling most of the story in the music, you know? Again, like that song, That's How I Got to Memphis. That's more it's, evocative somehow. I don't know why. That opening intro of That's How I Got to Memphis with the guitar walk down. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's, it's oh Incredible. my God, it's so good. There's also, it's interesting too, because this is something that I feel like it is on your new record. There's a lot of space. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, it's not a busy mm-hmm. record, but there's a lot of space yeah. sonically. It's not over compressed. And I feel like that this is a thing that's happening more and more now with people of, say, our generation that, that mm-hmm. you know, just came from compress the shit out of it and make it louder, make it louder. Like there's, you can really hear a lot of dynamics. And I think country music yeah. is one of the, one of the other, you know, styles of music that those dynamics are just so important. Yeah, when I... When I told my the drummer of the band, Nick, like, oh, man, I, I just I kind of rediscovered country music. He was like, why did you ever not listen to that? He's like, that music was made for you. I never understood why you didn't like it. He's like people with these like rich, full voices singing over very acoustic, warm, round music mm-hmm. with catchy melodies and like mm-hmm. kind of hilarious stories about drinking and cheating and all that stuff. He's like, I never understood why you were cynical of it. Because back in the day, I used to be like, yeah, country music. I used to say things like, it's all the boring notes put together or something like that. Which How, you know, much, how much of that do you think was basically you just trying to shit on your parents' choice of how you were raised? <laughs> <laughs> it absolutely was. I used to, nothing made me more angry than when my mom would say, Y- y'all and she's she's from missouri it's like you're not allowed to say y'all it, well what part of missouri is she from i'm from st louis missouri and no one says it here okay. but if you go to the cape Girardeau or, or south people will say missouri and they'll say y'all and you're just like no no you're not missouri yeah. Yeah. No, the Ozarks. No, she's from St. Louis. What? She's that's me. That's, so, I'm, that's I'm why from I said St. Louis. You can't, you can't say that. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I agree with you. Yeah, she's from Kirkwood. Oh, shit. Okay, yeah. that's that's 15 minutes down the road from me. Do you ever come back here? Yeah, every, um, every Christmas we used to drive from Santa Fe to uh, St. Louis. And my mom's whole family is there. The McLaughlin's were all based out of there um some of them have moved to chicago a few of them have moved to uh north carolina now but um but yeah that's where the whole family is from wow okay um do you know the the song early morning rain by gordon lightfoot yeah yeah. i feel like that yeah i was gonna say that's that is definitely um, there uh, years ago npr made or somebody made i don't know who it was but it was like the greatest folk and country songs in the world. And that was on mm. there. But mm-hmm. one of the versions that I love is Peter, Paul, and Mary's Early Morning Rain. And it's so good. I find myself yeah, listening yeah. to that. That's my favorite. Yeah, like once a week at minimum. Yeah, that's totally. Yeah, no, that's actually one of my favorites as well. And I was listening to a lot of these folk 
like country and folk, like in that genre. And that's not something I really spent the most time with, actually. Um, my obsessions always brought me elsewhere before. But the simplicity of it was really what got me. It kind of stunned me. It's like, it was like, here was a person singing, not at the top of their range, but right in the middle of it at the quietest volume they could manage and still hold the tone. And then just like gently plucking a guitar. And yet it was so transfixing, you know? And with this record, to me, I hear that too, because that was the reason I picked up the baritone uke, and that was the reason that I kind of kept it in these certain dynamics. I don't know, it's interesting, because I, I hear it very well, and I, I don't know if others will hear that influence, but that's what I was listening to when I made this record. It was like country and some folk music too, yeah. Well, and there's there's a lot of honesty in it, and I think when people talk about like mm -hmm. you know raw honesty and music specifically like classic american which i'm air quoting it's country i mean it's it's the most their love stories their parables i mean it's it's all in there yeah 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 i'll say something funny about that um my my girlfriend is german she's from berlin and in many ways she is very german okay. and so when i'm listening to all this country music she often would be listening to the lyrics and then she'd turn and look at me and she'd be like what is wrong with americans <laughs> <laughs> we're processing it man we got heavy shit on our hearts <laughs> i know i know you know, and she pointed out that like, and it's true. It's like every story is just such an exaggerated claim in some ways. It's like there's no <laughs> relation that goes correctly or well. Every relationship is like, oh, whoops, I cheated. Yeah. Whoops, I got drunk. Everything is, you know, everything is like, woe is me, even though I might have done all these horrible things. It's really funny when you think about it that way. Yeah. A lot of infidelity, a lot of uh, inebriation, uh, all that stuff. It's it's in there. It's in there for sure. It's the great American pastime, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> It really is. It's incredible. There was one song that really struck me. What's it called? Uh, Talk Back Trembling Lips. It's by Ernest Ashworth. That one, I really love that one because he's literally sitting there in what sounds like an abusive relationship trying to kind of <laughs> gaslight himself into not showing that it's hurting his pride. <laughs> it's like <laughs> it's like a heartbreaking song when you listen to it, but he sounds like, you know, like he's got all the kind of bluster of like a real cowpoke. It's, it's, it's awesome. Yeah. Um, one of the things I wanted to chat with you about too is is you're getting ready to play live again. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. How? What? Do you have any idea of like what the plan is of this? I mean, because I think this record is it's I, I love it. I think it's going to be great. And I mean, the world's going to want a lot of Zach. Yeah. Is this yeah. something that you've thought about? I have. There's only so much to give. I mean, the, the most I can give is is these albums and this. The concerts I'm about to play live, they're here in Berlin and I'm doing them because it's part of it is actually somewhat testing the water. I want to uh -huh. see if I can manage. If it's not a tour, can I manage performances? You know, can I mentally handle all of that? pressure and and so on so i'm going to do these two concerts in berlin i don't have anything else planned and, and to be honest i'm kind of leaning towards cu cutting it off at that um i'm so much happier in the studio no, what, I, I want what, to do these what about the money too yeah yeah i know well you know can't win everything that's <laughs> true <laughs> like that's a lot of people fair. are very shocked and worried you can't it's like I, I can live i can live in this degraded paranoid state where i spend every day worried about when the when the when the sword is going to fall on my head, you know, mm -hmm. or I can kind of cut that out of my life and just kind of tighten the belt, so to speak, and, and uh, make it work. So it's one of the reasons I'm releasing this on my own label and I'm not going with the record label is because then I have um, I have the, you know, the royalties, they just go right back to me. And, and yeah. 
also I can, you know, I'm not going to go down and be the suit and be like, you got to go tour. Like, I'm not going to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, one thing that some artists have have done is um is basically this this new kind of like in residence. Have you have you thought about that in which mm-hmm. you're basically going? It it is a tour sure. to be clear. I mean, you can zoom out and call it that, but it's yeah. it's more of like you're camping out yeah. at a city and you're doing like four or five days of a show. But it's it's less intense, mm-hmm. you know. And yeah. I feel like more and more artists are are doing this. You know, probably the most famous examples like Harry Styles thing where he just camped out in cities for a while. But oh, did he? I didn't know. I think yeah. I saw that Feist was doing. I remember. I remember being like, huh, she's spending four days in every city or something like that. And I was yeah. kind of interested in what that was about. And I think everybody knows that what musicians have attempted to do through touring is not safe. <laughs> I, think, I think everybody knows, like everyone is already aware of that. Um, yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Most most musicians are alcoholics for a reason, you know. <laughs> it's like the only way to numb yourself to that stuff. So, yeah. But I... I would consider that my, you know, I want to, I think performances are special. You know, I I like that, but I think touring is, is inhuman. Like it just, it's just inhuman. I, some people love it, you know, like Kyle and Ben, like I was mentioning, like they still tour with the national. Those guys have been on tour for what, two and a half decades or something like that. Yeah. Well, look at Bob Um, Dylan. Yeah. Right. Bob Dylan. (laughs) So yeah. So people do it and people swear by it. It's not for me. That's for sure. Um, I would do, I would do a residency somewhere, but for me, I'm almost like, I think the concerts themselves have to have a special reason to exist. So even this one is just because Hatzel is coming out. And so half the year into that being out, I'm like, let's present it live. And I'm bringing like a string section and stuff so that it's a special event for the, for the musical reason, not just for like who's showing up or something. I think also, and I'm not trying to do your job for you, I want to be clear, I, but just as a person who loves your music, um, a lot of people are doing the kind of, uh, I don't, simulcast is not really the right word, but just like you go and you perform and you record it. Mm. You know, the best example of this was the Beatles, right? The Beatles yeah, were like, yeah. we can't tour. We can't tour and, and touring isn't even effective or efficient for mm-hmm. us, but we can make a film and, you know, you can watch us play right. and you can still kind of like scratch that itch is that something you've thought about it is i we're trying to think of a way to record it that's worth it being recorded that it sounds well it sounds nice and it looks it's interesting enough you know it's it's hard to do because i'm I'm juggling so many other things too it's it's Uh like i wish i could concentrate more on i don't know set design and what goes on but but uh yeah let's let's see how it goes because i'm i'm very interested but i'm you know i'm nervous too i'm 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 not the worst as far as stage fright but i get terrified of the pressure so yeah yeah i mean and i think it makes perfect sense because you know you also have an incredibly large and diverse global audience uh you're not you're not really it's not 50 people in albuquerque that want to hear you (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there were never 50 people in Albuquerque that wanted to hear me. I can tell you that. <laughs> My shows were much smaller there. Um, no, I, I, it is crazy to me that, and this was a weird thing about working with a lot of record labels and stuff is like, they're almost surprised that I had big audiences in places like Brazil and Turkey and Mexico. They're kind of like, well, what do we do with that? They don't buy records. And I'm like, yeah, we got to do something. This, this is yeah. a big audience, you know, this is important to me. So yeah, that's, I do love that that has been the kind of unique path of my 
band and my musical project and compared to others um, that I know personally, I've, I've, it's, I've seen a much wider net in that way. It's, it might, I might not be as popular as them in a lot of American cities, for example, but when I go to Istanbul or when I go to Brazil or something, it's like a totally different story. And that's amazing to me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another thing that I want to chat with you about that may come a bit out of left field is um, I was talking to my younger brother last night and I told him I was going to talk with you. And he said, he said, oh man, he said, Beirut and Zach Condon got me to change how I dress. He said, when I was younger and I saw how Zach was dressed on stage with, you know, the corduroy pants, the white tee, or more importantly, the corduroy pants, the white tee, and the like knit v-neck to him. And I think to many others, because I went back and looked at old photos of you, especially you at North Six, um, <laughs> you're like the style god. So I'm kind of curious if that's anything that was ever intentional or, or what. Uh, no, not at all. I, I'm not a super fashionable guy. My whole thing with that is I'm just very conservative. <laughs> just very, <laughs> like, I'm like, what happened to people looking nice? You know, <laughs> like I'm one of those old, old fogies where I'm like, eh, kids these days, you know, with their tattoos and their piercings. And I'm like, eh, I don't like it. <laughs> well, I mean, there's some good, there's some good, uh, some good style in Berlin. I mean, it's, it's kind of the, the cultural hub of the kind of the, <laughs> you know, the put together and also bohemian <laughs> world. No, the most, yeah. It's like the most punk rock you could be in Berlin is to wear a suit. <laughs> People will like hiss at you, like throw, throw fruit at you. Like, yeah. So is that, is that a, on the horizon? Is that what you're going to wear then for your, uh, for the Berlin show? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I always, in Berlin, I always feel super dressed up, but I, I just prefer that. I just prefer, it's just, for me, it's just like, I don't know. There's just this kind of like modicum of decorum that I like to have, I guess. I just like to look neat, you know, but let, let yeah, the it, hair flow free. <laughs> But button up your shirt, you know, that's, that's like my style. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it sounds like uh, there's a bit of a uniform, though. Like, do you is there is there anything that you, you know, when you're writing music, is there anything that you set or is it like you got to have the cup of tea or you got to have the slippers or, you know, earlier you had mentioned sweatpants and being cozy when you were writing. Is there anything else that kind of like fits that environment for you? Well, like right now I have all these mints that I've just buy at the pharmacy near here and then yep. these pieces of gum because I always I always drink and chew obsessively when I work because I'm I'm a neurotic and so it's like if it's not gum or these then it's my nails you know oh yeah you don't want to don't want to chew on the nails no I used to my hands used to just be like mangled bloody messes all the time oh my god yeah on the on the mint front I also keep at my desk these uh these mints I'll let the mic pick them up. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's I'm I'm in the exact same thing. Or I, yeah. whenever I'm talking or doing any interviews or anything, like I always have to fiddle with something at all times. It's like, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not the kind of person who's going to carry around a fidget spinner, but yeah, I I have the a yeah. weird sort of thing where I'm constantly like tapping my head or something. Yeah, I I have so many weird issues. I I don't even know if I should talk about them because it's like I will just like scratch my head neurotically if I'm reading a book or something. I will just sit there scratching, scratching, scratching the same spot. It's it's a mess. Like I'm I'm falling apart half the time. So maybe that's why I like to dress neat is I'm trying to like counteract all that kind of chaos. Yeah, there you go. I mean, I at least you still have your hair. I mean, shit, man. When I first met you, I had a full head of hair, and now I'm bald <laughs> as hell. Did you? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well. <laughs> 
Damn. Yeah, I wouldn't know what to say about that. That's like the one my family tends to keep their hair. That's pretty lucky. Yeah. Yeah. Ride that wave. (laughs) Um, as uh, as as you've been kind of getting ready and doing press for this new album, like what's what's the perfect day or the or like your standard routine for you in Berlin? Oh, you know, I don't really go out anymore. If I'm being honest, my problem is actually if left to my own devices, I can actually sink into myself and it's not, it's not the prettiest thing. I I can really kind of withdraw from the world. And I I do that often, in fact, and I move to this place that's like, it's not in the center of things. It's, it's kind of outside the center of things. And I have this beautiful studio here. It's amazing. So when I'm not in here, because especially lately, I've been in here 24 hours a day, just working on this new project. But um, if I'm not doing that, I, I usually will pick, a book or a TV show or something. And I will just like vegetate because just shut the world out, disappear entirely, like play a phone game, listen to a podcast. And it's, it's, it's nice, but it's it, my, the amount that my brain craves this is very unhealthy, unfortunately, because I'm, I'm such an escapist when it comes down to it. So I can go weeks without leaving the house. If I'm being honest, like that will happen. Oh my God. What's, well, what are the things you're watching then? Yeah. Well, I haven't been watching many shows lately. The last thing I was watching was like a Scandinavian crime series or something. I don't even remember the name, actually. <laughs> I, I used to watch movies obsessively as a teenager and a young 20 something. I really, I could have told you every French new wave film and like all the latest Turkish independent film and so on. But nowadays it's not. I've, I've actually been reading sci fi books obsessively. Okay. Go on. Yeah. I'm obsessed with sci-fi. I always have been since I was a little kid. And for me, it's because it's pure imagination. There's, it's just like, let your mind run free, no limitations. And so I've just become really obsessed. I think the funny thing is, I think it would have been a little bit frowned upon in my family early on because we were almost like a book snob type family to an extent. I mean, not really, but my, my older brother was a very literature heavy person. He was, um, he was like giving me like Kierkegaard philosophy when I was like 12. Whoa. Like, yeah, digest this. Yeah. On, on the reading stuff, it, have you read, I think it's called Hail Mary, but it's by the same author of The Martian. No. Uh, Andy Weir, I think is his name. Oh, Andy Weir. But that was like a huge sci-fi book in the past couple of years. And it's, um, yeah, it's, it's really, really good. Yeah. And I think also it's one of the books too, where the audio book is even better because, you know, spoiler, but there's like a, huh. a alien life form that the guy communicates with. And um, uh-huh. how how it's voiced is in like this really interesting sort of synth style thing. It's it's pretty cool. Oh, really funny. Yeah. I, I would check that out. I've read Andy Ware's comic books. You know, I, I like I like that a lot. Um, but no, like I would, when I was making Hadsel, I was obsessed with Hyperion. Do you know that series? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm more of a saga guy, but yeah, it's Hyperion's great. So I was really obsessed with all of those. I read every single one of them. And then I've just been kind of going nonstop ever since. My younger brother was the one that introduced me to these, and then I've just been eating them up. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the uh, specifically also any sort of like graphic novel or sort of comic, I've, I don't know, I think there's a, our generation is like way more into that now because we're like a bit overloaded and kind of mm. turned off from some of the constant digital engagement that we're doing. It's yeah. yeah I mean, I definitely have a lot of, uh, a lot of hope for the kids when like younger kids are like, yeah, man, Instagram, no way, man. That's, I don't even want a phone. 
And you're just like, wow. <laughs> oh boy, yeah. I I hope the younger generation can disentangle itself from oh from they're the they're fine constant onslaught. I, yeah. I was just lamenting the other day that it's like albums that come out now just don't feel special like they used to. And I, I don't think it's my age. I think it's just there's just so much of it. And yeah, I don't know. But what are you gonna do? There's nothing you can do. You can complain, I guess. But that's that. <laughs> I think I think albums do feel special, but I think you're you're a musician and you're also surrounded by music all the time and you're in a unique situation where your what you love is also your profession, which is a, a, a blessing and a curse. But I wholeheartedly disagree. When albums come out, they are very much still special. It is it is so important to so many people to have good music and to have new music. No way. I'm glad to hear I'm glad to hear that. I like I said, I can come across as very cynical. I'm I'm actually hopeful. I'm always like, yeah, music is the true beauty of the world. But but there's too many damn albums. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, so it's funny because when um, I was talking with my wife about this earlier this morning and I was like, you know, I definitely sympathize for a lot of musicians because you're not competing with just the other new artists of the day. You're actually competing with all the music that's ever been released every time you make stuff because of the digital mm. age and streaming services you have people that are discovering steely dan and bands from 40 some odd years ago mm -hmm. the same time they're discovering beirut right which is which is great because people can connect influences and can really dive in and explore bands that aren't actively touring and things like that but on the other side of it it is a bit of a challenge when you're kind of maybe fighting for more fighting through the noise per se yeah I absolutely. I mean, it's not something I've really thought about often. And part, part of me just wants to say, um, how could we ever compete with those artists from like 50 years ago anyway, right? We all still live in a in the Beatles world. And yeah, frankly, I'm I'm okay with that because I, I still am like, yeah, it's the best, isn't it? I mean, Beach Boys and the Beatles, they just they nailed it. <laughs> they really nailed it. So <laughs> yeah. Uh, what's what's your favorite Beatles album? It depends. Uh, Rubber Soul has two of my favorite songs of theirs ever. Um, I think that's the one that has Michelle on it and uh, Norwegian Wood. Mm -hmm. and Norwegian Wood, all yeah. these ones that just mean the world to me. But I'm also a big fan of uh, Sgt. Pepper. So you're, you're a John guy. Am I? Is that what that makes it? I think they really needed each other. I think that um, Paul McCartney on his own, he would drift off into um, softness. And John Lennon on his own would drift off into harshness. And it was the beauty of it was where they met in the middle. Oh, wow. That's a really good take. And yes, I wholeheartedly agree with that. I, yeah. I've talked about this in other episodes and stuff in the past. Um, like yeah. I feel like I rediscovered the Beatles through my kids because yes, I've listened to the Beatles a ton, but watching my kids hear the Beatles for the first time really made me go and revisit a lot of their other records because there's just so much like rich beauty on there. And yeah, as yeah. someone who's always trying to understand more of like, what the artist is experiencing when they write it. Next thing you know, I'm like four books in on different biographies of <laughs> Paul and George and, you know, trying to figure out like what was the angst that they were experiencing 
And I mean, because these guys made most of their music before they were like 25, you know? I mean, shit, it's it's nuts. Right, right. It's so fascinating. It's like two of the most musical people in the world just bumped into each other in the same city of all things and were mates. And yeah, I, I love that stuff. But for a child, that music is incredible. And that's what I grew up with. Because it's like, especially with the Beatles, because they had just this catalog of, of music from around the world. And you have the Indian songs and then the like British March songs and like mm-hmm. the weird like pump brass bands moments and it was really just such an adventure with them you know and then i would hear the beach boys and i would just be blown away by harmony like just to a child it's like how do voices do that how is that even possible you know it, it creates a different sonic world that you wouldn't expect so but yeah the beatles yeah, I mean, the interesting thing, too, is all those musicians that you mentioned, specifically Brian Wilson and and Paul and John, were musicians who most of their music was trying to find some way to connect deeper with their family or, you know, lamenting the loss of family yes. members. Yeah. It's, it's heavy what emotion does to your art. It's really heavy. You know, I've actually, I've usually bristled at the kind of thought that art and music is all about self-expression <laughs> because I really grew up in this city where... I was, I was just like, there was just this cult of new age. Everything was new age. Everything was about like picking and choosing whatever you wanted from around the world that fit your kind of, oh, you know, so I'm an Aquarius and this is my crystal and blah, blah, blah. And that stuff drives me nuts because I find it to be incredibly selfish and incredibly childish. And what those people taught obsessively was that all art is self-expression and the the, the beauty of art is self-expression. The meaning of art is self-expression. It's all just about getting your expression out. And when I started making music, that never made any sense because when I would, in the moment of creation i it's like you could imagine my eyes rolling into the back of my head and i just disappear for a while and something else comes out and i don't even know if it's me you know and so i wonder you know like i think what those guys were expressing wasn't necessarily their like deep desire to connect with their families so much as just the incredible mix like melange of all these feelings that just swim around us and it's not like they purposefully were like, this song is about my father. This song is about my ex-girlfriend. It was like, this is just the stuff that seeps out that we all have. And they were just good at channeling it, you know? And that's what I think of as art is like being a good channel for other bigger, more important, meaningful things. And it doesn't have anything at all practically to do with you. It's like you are yet another instrument that's kind of being played by something bigger in some ways. So, yeah, I don't even know how I got started on that. But No, I mean, I think that makes perfect sense. But it sounds to me you're just describing intentional and unintentional art and i don't i don't I, I don't think much good art is purely intentional because most of us are driven by uh greed and vanity and if we're trying to make art that's based around that mm-hmm. rarely is it very good you know we're at our best selves when we're disassociated from that that type of person i mean that's just my worldview that's, but yeah no that's the best that's like the best description of the phenomenon i'm talking about that i've heard in a while and that's so true and i've noticed lately that i'm allergic to music that seems self-aware just immediately <laughs> i'm like turn it off as soon as i hear someone in the studio and their lip kind of curls up to a sneer and they're like look how fucking cool i am my i'm just like turn it off turn it off <laughs> i don't want to hear anymore kick that guy out of the profession. I'm done. Like, yeah, that kind of coolness has no place. Yeah. Well, that's fine. I guess it's safe to say there'll never be a Beirut and Max Martin collab, which sounds about right. <laughs> no. Yeah, no, probably not. Yeah. 
I feel like with this record, I, I had to like dump dump a lot of awareness of the audience. Just like, no, there is no audience. It's just, let's just do this, you know, and, and wear your heart on your sleeve, whatever. Just let it be genuine. Because I hear so much music that's so tainted by awareness. Like I've often said, and this is going to make me some enemies, but like the real downfall of a lot of modern British music is just how incredibly overcultured they are. Go on. So... So when you go to Britain, when you, as an American, when you go to London and you go to the record stores, I could spend my lifetime in those record stores. They have everything under the sun. It's incredible. It's like the best library of music ever. Like there's sounds of the universe in Soho. It's like, it's my happy place as far as music goes. But I'm just sitting there thinking like, they've got all these radio shows and all these record stores. And, and Britain has always been just so much more kind of aware of the world than Americans were. And because of that, they're kind of sampling a little bit of tea from everywhere. You know, like they're just like, yeah, take a bit of this, bit of that. Oh, I really like that Brazilian baile funk sound. Oh, a little bit of this. Little. And, and what they get is this like hyper calculated music half the time. Mm. It's like the British soul singers. I don't know. It's like, there's something, it's almost like they're just, they're just overexposed or something. And I feel like often it doesn't lead to like a more genuine sense of exploration. And like, it's like, or maybe maybe there's too much like kind of status in the air over there or something and, and there's a lot of stuff that suffers from that kind of yeah like over intentional like here's we're going to sound really cool with this like cool grimy sound from this genre and 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 there's just that overexposure that leads to a kind of jadedness i feel it in their music somehow i, I don't know i could be totally wrong and i'm not saying it's everyone either but i've noticed that well i think it if i am kind of reflecting this back to you yeah. a lot of um, pop culture of Britain is tends to be driven by celebrity, which is very formulaic because it's based around hype. It's based around vanity, yeah. and that, and you know, in many ways, the best gossip stuff is always British tabloid magazines because there's also a fourth wall that's broken quite a bit, and weirdly, mm-hmm. uh, less of a respect of personal space. Right? They're they're, they're going to write a piece, and this is all gossip magazines and stuff now. That are that's more about the person's personal life than it is the art that they make, mm-hmm. right? So it might be like you know Zach dunks on the culture of Britain instead of how good of a musician you are, because in a weird way that that's a sizzling thing that's going to drive more response. Sure, and yeah. it's also you know a little bit easier to respond to than yeah. music. But I I don't know. I, I'm just I'm trying to 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 peel away some of this stuff to feel like what the root is of, of the emotion you have. No, that's that's an interesting take on it, actually. And then because of a kind of culture like that, you would be kind of, you're putting more distance between the image you put out and yourself for safety. And I think yeah. that's what I kind of, that's what bothers me in music that feels so kind of calculated and polished often is I'm like, where's the human under there? And, and I, I just can't, there's nothing to grab onto in some ways when it comes out like that. But then that would make sense it comes out that way, especially in a place if you're from like you're living in London, for example, where you really are just exposed to. I feel like they're so aware of the image because it's like they're seeing everyone's projected images from every part of the world all the time. It's like, that's what I mean by the overexposure is they're like so aware of how it's going to be perceived and, and so on. So it's I don't know. It's interesting. Every city is guilty of that. You know, New York is guilty of that. Paris is guilty of that. What do you think has been the thing that's kept you in Berlin the longest? You know, there are things about Berlin that exhaust me. And they're in that category, unfortunately. And and Berlin avoided aspects of it for a long time. And now mm-hmm. they're becoming they're becoming really omnipresent 
and they're kind of everywhere all of a sudden. And yeah, it's it's like I'm speaking in abstract, so like it's not like I can give you specific examples. But um, but there is this feeling now that a lot of people are coming to say that they've lived abroad, for example. Okay. It's like checklist stuff, you know? You get a lot. There's so many Americans here. It's incredible. It's it's like it's turned into Brooklyn like 10, 15 years ago or something. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I mean, Ber- Berlin is the is the better Williamsburg. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that is a shame. You know, that's not <laughs> what it ever was. And yet that is how it's treated. And you really get this feeling that they're treating it like a zoo exhibit or like a playground for themselves, you know, it's like, Hey, I'm going to go here and I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, do the clubs and I'm going to post it on Instagram and I'm going to, you know, you hear them say things like, it's so cool because it's nothing like Germany. And you're like, Hmm. you're right in the heart of Germany. And what you think is great about it is how non-German it is. Like what kind of disrespect, like to base your relationship on a place with is that, you know, it's, it's odd to me. And, and so I really get the feeling that, yeah, it's like the place is getting kind of bogged down with a lot of that kind of behavior with people who are pretty disrespectful of it in some ways, unfortunately. So Zach, I love how you grieve for the things that you feel are defenseless. It's very interesting to me because this is something that runs throughout your music and you as an individual, you really appear to empathize for anything that you feel is being unfairly treated. I'm curious where some of that stuff comes from because it's, it's a, it's a beautiful trait, but I can, I can see how it really bothers you when things might not be treated in a way that you think is reflective of how they were created. Yeah. With reverence, you know, I don't know. I sometimes I'm like, scared of how this comes across sometimes because it's not like I know better that's like that's that's one thing I want to get across is that I contradict myself all the time and I don't I don't know better I'm trying to learn just like anyone else but I do I see so many problems with this here and and it and it's a these cultural issues and having been, you know, coming here for most of my life. And I I have this deep fascination with Europe and it's, it's genuine. It's like real. Uh, Ever since I was a little kid, you know, uh, obsessed with the architecture, with the kind of cultures of their cinema and their music and all these things. And I really saw Europe as a kind of antidote for a lot of American things. And I come here now and I see so much Americanisms just kind of rubbing off on this place in a way that feels really unhealthy and kind of like, destabilizing their like local vibe and it and it it frustrates me to no end i don't know what it comes from um i guess i can relate certainly with my own struggles a little bit but i don't know Mm -hmm. if i'm just projecting it at large on, on, on these bigger cultural things but it's like i go to the places and i just i really see like i was just in paris because i was doing press there and in paris i'm like this excited little kid i speak decent French and I, I get really happy like cool I get to be here and I like couldn't sleep the night before because the little kid in me was just up like yeah yeah we're going back to Paris and I get there and it's just it's flooded to the brim with Americans and in every <laughs> restaurant it's just like some American being like you know day drunk and just like treating the waiters like it was Disneyland and that they were kind of paid to entertain Americans in Paris. Mm. And it it kills me. Yeah, it kills me a little bit. I really do feel like that is one huge issue that we tend to have coming from there and traveling abroad is like, what can we get from this for ourselves? You know, it's like, was that ever you though, at one point? Maybe at times, maybe at times. 
Yeah. Because sometimes I say things and I'm like, I, th- these are things that I've had a lot of time to think about. And I've had specific examples that really stuck out to me. And then when I, when I try to recall them later on, I'm just kind of this foggy brained, like, oh, isn't that sad? But I can't really be like, well, here's the concrete evidence I have. And here's why I feel this way. But yeah. Yeah. That's okay. I, you're, it, you're a person that connects with culture and people pretty deeply. And I think the, for me, a lot of this is, is that like you, uh, yeah, yeah, you want to, you're like a protector. I mean, I think that's that's the thing that is the most. It comes out through your music. It comes out like there's a desire to protect what, in your eyes, you view as pure and untainted. You know, hence going to the middle of nowhere in Norway to make music. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, it's like I'm looking for genuine things. You know, it's like even with the Balkan music, for example, because I was so obsessed with that when I was I was 19 years old. I was traveling around here and I heard it and it, it just it floored me. It knocked me over. I was already a brass player, but I'd never heard brass used in that way. And it was this whole melodic world that was just so foreign to an American ear. And yet it was so vibrant and so intensely emotional and and just like, I don't know how to explain it, just everything. And it was crazy because around that time, I started making music really influenced by it because I love when music's meet. I love when cultures meet. Like I think American music, some of the beauty of it is, is like rock and roll was the meeting of like African rhythm and like all these other things, like European melodic sense and stuff like that. Uh, Brazilian music is the same thing. It's, it's, it's another beauty of cultures colliding in that way musically. But then it was like during that time, there were these things coming out that was just like techno remixes of Balkan music. You know what I mean? And listen, it's not all bad. I'm not just going to sit here and be like, you can't do that. No, of course not. You can do whatever you want with music. I don't believe in like appropriation or any of that nonsense, but there's just something that just felt so like plastic and thin and empty out of that. Cause it was like, it's like, listen to this clown music over this techno beat instead of like this very serious melodic deep intense stuff that could like pull your heart out you know that's that's what yeah. i that's what i see you know and and that's what worries me yeah i i think well i think as long as there are artists such as yourself because it, you know like i was saying at the very beginning i think there's many people that you influence, whether you realize it or not, and how you not just based on the your actual output, but the philosophy of how you approach music and songwriting, I think is that in a, in a lot of ways, you're, you're going to write the course through your own actions. I mean, I think a lot of people, you know, are getting into ukulele or have gotten into ukulele and different types of, you know, non-traditional sort of uh, music and and instruments right. and exploring those on their own in ways. And that's because of you and other, and other artists like you. So, I mean, I, I think you're, you're writing the course on your, on your own. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, that's nice to hear too. And let's see if that comes back to haunt me someday too, right? <laughs> <laughs> nah, nah, I'm, I'm sure you're good. <laughs> Uh, well, Zach, I want to be conscious of your time and I thank you for being so generous with it. Sure. Um, but thanks a lot. It was, it was great to meet you. Oh, cheers. Yeah. You've been listening to Blamo. Our show is produced by Blamo Media. We're edited by Amarlal and our theme music, as always, by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. If you like what you heard, you know the drill. Share the pod with a friend. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Give us five stars or whatever on Spotify. Wherever it is you're leaving reviews, go for it. You can follow us on Instagram for all the hot content at Blamo Podcast. And last but not least, if you want to hang out with us, you can join the Blam Fam. Yes, that is the name at patreon.com forward slash Blamo, where we have tons of exclusive episodes, exclusive shows, and our amazing, incredible Slack community. All right, folks, we'll see you soon.